Kate Bowler is a professor at Duke Divinity School and the author of the book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies That I Love. In it, she talks about how she had always lived with this belief that good things come back to those who are good. And by all accounts, that seemed to be working for her. At age 35, she had just published her first book entitled Blessed. She'd married her high school sweetheart, landed her dream job at Duke, and had a beautiful baby boy. Everything was falling into place. That is, until she got a call from the doctor's office with the test results from a recent scan. Cancer. Stage four. In her book, she recounts all the stuff that people had said to her using these Christian platitudes that were incredibly trite. Many of those were plucked straight from this passage here in Romans. It's one of the most quotable passages in the entire Bible, and it's probably the most read passage at a funeral. And it's obvious why. It's filled with hope and promise. I mean, there's no denying that the Apostle Paul was on fire that day when he wrote down these words. I mean, it's like his greatest hits album with such fan favorites as all things work together for good for those who love God. And the Spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. And who can forget if God is for us? Who can be against us? And yet, sometimes these one-liners feel less like faith and more like denial of reality. Like some pious, sentimental, cross-stitched version of faith that looks pretty on my grandma's wall but feels more like putting a Band-Aid on an open, gaping wound. Do you know what I mean? I mean, is faith simply a formula? Like, just be a super duper good Christian and God will bless you and make you happy? Should these words of scripture simply be reserved for the end of life at a funeral? Or do they have something to say about the suffering, pain, and fear of life now? That's the question for today. I couldn't fit it all into a sermon title, so I left it blank. Something like that. But I mean, take verse 28, for example. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now, how many of you, during some painful crisis, like an illness, or an untimely death, or divorce, or a cancer diagnosis, or whatever, how many of you have had a vapid but well-meaning person say something totally unhelpful to you? Like, God won't give you more than you can handle. Or, when God closes a door, he opens a window. Or, all things work together for good for those who love God. Anyone? Now, how many of you have said something like that? I get it. We are a species desperate 
for closure. But as Nadia Boltz Weber claims, sentiment doesn't whitewash away someone's pain. It just makes the person saying it feel safer. And when Paul says all things work together for good, good doesn't mean a decent home, a healthy family, a rewarding job, a loving partner, and a long life. No, Paul has a very specific definition of good. Good for him is looking like Jesus. And here in this passage, he gives us five verbs that describe what that process looks like. God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And we get all hung up on the word predestined, but Paul is simply saying that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, this was God's whole point all along, making us and remaking us to look like Jesus. And faith is simply cooperating in that process. That's what good means. That's what we hope for. We get to look like Jesus. But bear in mind that Jesus was homeless, rejected, betrayed, tortured, and executed. You can't be surprised if we get a taste of those things too. So I'm going to go defend Paul here. It's not his fault that people tried to make this a formula so that they could explain away all the chaos and unpredictability of life. So then, what are we to say about these things, Paul asks? If God is for us, who is against us? And I've got to admit that when I was getting bullied in junior high, this verse ran through my head like a mantra. If God is for us, then who can be against us? But now when I think about it, now when I think about who is against me, it's not Billy with the stonewashed jeans and the buzz cut. It's me. I'm against me. Who is against us? Us. We are against us. We're our own worst enemy. The greatest issue for us all, the most difficult villain we will ever face and have to defeat, will be the one that we face in the mirror. It's the poet Rudy Francesco who says in his poem, Mirrors and Windows, he says, there was a moment in my life when I could not tell the difference between a window and a mirror. I could look into both and see everything but myself. This is the human condition. It's the internal struggle. Or as Jamal Bryant states, this is World War me. We struggle to see the window and recognize the mirror. St. Augustine states that all of humanity faces this challenge, this struggle that began in the Garden of Eden when sin entered the picture. You see, when we talk about sin, we simply talk about it as actions or words. Sin is something we do versus a state of who we are. 
But sin, though, when given the appropriate translation in English, literally means separation. Living disconnected. To be in a state of sin is to be in a state of separation. Separation from God, separation from each other, separation from ourselves. When we are disconnected from God, when we are separate from our community, this is sin. We sin when we are all about me. We sin when we care not how we impact the person next to us. In other words, let me do what I want when I want it because it makes me feel good. But I don't really care how it affects you. We believe we have the right to say anything because in America we have the right to free speech. And yes, we have the right to free speech. You can say whatever you want to say. But the moral question, the spiritual question, is should you say it? Should the words come out of your mouth? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And when we live in separation, when we become self-centered, it becomes about you and you don't care about your neighbor. The way that God created this world, it's all interconnected. And what affects you affects me. And when I don't see God in you, I end up cutting you and myself off at the same time. The problem in our community, the problem in our nation, is we don't care what happens to someone else. That's why someone can say, isn't it terrible what those folks are doing in such and such community, shooting each other? But if you are connected, then your heart breaks for every child of God that we may not all be responsible, but everybody is accountable. Willie James Jennings says that nowhere is this separation more evident than in our own suffering. This is separation at its most diabolical work. He says it draws a circle around us and slowly shrinks our space, separating peoples then families, working all the way down to the individual body. There it finds its perfect work in isolating a person from others. And finally, even splitting mind from body, soul from beating heart. This is what Paul is trying to get at in saying that we live a life of separation. Earlier in this chapter, Paul says that when you are separated, that is the sinful nature. When you're dependent upon yourself and don't care about the suffering of others, when you're separated, you're not walking the path of Christ. Because the path of Christ doesn't detour around suffering. No, Paul says here, God did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us. In other words, the pain and the separateness of humanity has entered into the heart of God. 
And instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. And great mystery of all mysteries, to redeem the brokenness and separateness, the God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power, but sent his beloved son to suffer like us. And through his suffering, redeemed us from suffering and evil. This is the reason he went to the cross. This is why he had to go to the cross. Christ suffered so that suffering could no longer separate. And Paul goes through no less than 17 kinds of things that have separated us. Here's all 17 as fast as I can say them. Hardship, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth. And in case you just think anything could possibly be left out, Paul finishes off with anything else in all creation. Notice in this list, these are all things that Jesus himself was exposed to. Paul's giving us this list to say that there is nothing that we could go through that Jesus, Jesus hasn't first gone through, except perhaps one. In this long list, there's still one thing missing. And there's a lurking suspicion in the hearts of so many people. Maybe you're one of them. That the problem of suffering, of disappointment, sickness, and grief isn't about any of these things that have happened to you. It's about what you've done. It's about what you've caused. It's about your complicity in these forces that separate. Maybe now you feel that you are broken beyond repair. Maybe you feel you're too far separated from God. That God has turned away from you. That God is punishing you or has lost patience with you. Paul knows all about that last lingering fear. Paul knows that it's the most isolating fear of all because it keys into our own profound feelings of self-hatred, guilt, shame, and despair. But Paul finally insists that even this fear is completely and utterly groundless. Who will bring any charge against God's elect, he says. And he answers it, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus, who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Growing up in the church, I hear this passage read and preached on as a promise of our forgiveness and a testimony to our belovedness. However, at the time, there were far louder voices proclaiming that I was not enough. I was not good enough. 
I was not smart enough. I did not do enough. I did not make enough. I could not provide enough, etc., etc. That not enough testimony tended to be what surrounded me all those years. The testimony that, frankly, here at IPC as an adult, still surrounds me. But I can remember the first time I truly heard these words from Paul. And suddenly a light bulb just came on for me in a new way. I truly heard what Paul was proclaiming in these words. And I let it wash over me, even if it was just for a minute, that I'm a forgiven, beloved child of God, regardless of my own actions. Listen again. Maybe you might hear it too. Who is in a position to condemn us, Paul asks. Who is it that gets to tell us if we're good enough? Who is it that honestly holds that kind of power over our futures and our lives? Is it our boss or our spouse? Is it our parents or our children? Is it social media? Or all those voices that say not enough? No, Paul says. Jesus Christ is the only one with that kind of power. And there is no condemnation. No condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why else would Jesus have gone through hell and high water for us. And if God is for me, which he is, then why should I be against me? Who am I to doubt the love given to me? Who am I to want less for me than God does? Who am I to think that there is anything about me that God cannot redeem? Who will separate us from the love of Christ Will hardship, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Will anxiety, or addiction, or depression? Will doubt, or the distance of faith from our childhood, or the stuff that we've done or that has been done to us? Will the disapproval of others or your own inertia separate you from the love of God? No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, Paul says, through him who loved us. We are more than simply conquerors. We're something more powerful. We're loved. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not one thing. Not one. God decided to love and to claim you from the very beginning, even before time. 
God never began to love you. God always loved you. God is with you at every step. And Jesus has faced everything you're feeling. He suffered so that suffering could no longer separate. What I mean is the love of God in Christ may not separate us from suffering, but suffering cannot, shall not, and will not separate us from the love of Christ. How are we supposed to respond to such amazing love? Well, if the point of life is to look like Jesus, then this is the kind of hell and high water we're asked to go through as well. We can't ignore the suffering of others, but like Christ, we must enter into it so that there will be no separation between us and them and God. A while back, I was reading this book about shogun and samurai culture, and I found out something called kintsugi. Kintsugi, it was in 15th century Japan, and there was a shogun who had some teapots that were broken, and he sent them out to, to get fixed. And when they came back, they were more jacked up than when he sent them back, and so there was this group of Japanese craftsmen who found out a way to improve that which is broken, which they called kintsugi. You see, if you find a kintsugi pot today, it'll be worth a lot of money. But the strange thing is, is if you find a kintsugi, they're imperfect. Because the craftsmen are always looking for the pots that have been thrown away, the ones that have been broken, the ones that have been cracked, the ones that are leaking water or tea. And what they do is they, they, they take the broken pieces and they, they get some gold flecks and they bind the broken pieces of the pot with that gold so that these broken pots now have been joined together with gold. And what I want you to know is that when you get a kintsugi pot, it's more expensive than a regular pot because the potter has taken what is broken and he's added some more value. And though you can see the cracks, the cracks are actually a testimony that speaks to the potter who had their hands on the pot. You see, what I want you to know is that the God that we serve pulls us out of the heap of what everybody else has thrown aside, finds all the ways that we have separated ourselves and puts us back together. But doesn't just put us back together so that no one knows what we've been through. No, God calls us to go out and share how God has filled the cracks of our life with grace and mercy and compassion and love so that together with our brothers and sisters we will walk out of the isolation of separation into the inseparable love of Jesus Christ. And while that doesn't take away your pain or your loss, 
the fact remains that nothing is lost on God. And while pain is still pain and loss is still loss, there is no pain and there is no loss that God cannot piece together some kind of new life out of eventually. Weeping endures through the night, but joy comes in the morning. It does. It always does. It always will. It's the defiant love of God pushing daisies up out of the broken concrete of our lives. And nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from it. Thanks be to God. Amen.